and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, then you can find that on page 916. 916. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 25. So Acts chapter 8, starting verse 9 and then reading to verse 25. In 1858, a discovery by a French biochemist, Nicolas Theodore Gobley, opened the door to a new way to eat. He discovered a way to isolate vanillin, which is the key chemical compound that gives vanilla its flavor. About 15 years later, two German scientists successfully figured out how to synthesize the same compound from coniferin, which actually comes from pine tree bark. Now, previously vanilla, the taste of vanilla had only been for the privileged few who could afford it. Vanilla remains one of the most expensive spices in the world. But now, the flavor had become accessible to kitchens everywhere. Odds are, most of you uh, probably have some imitation vanilla in your cabinet at home right now. Along with vanilla, discoveries in the mid-1800s and then on into the early 1900s led to the rise of all sorts of new artificial flavors. From jelly beans to cough medicine, suckers, and popsicles, you're going to find artificial flavors pretty much everywhere. And you probably have your favorites. Ellie and I both prefer orange and wa- or watermelon. Titus, all Titus cares is that it's blue. And Rebecca, well, Rebecca will just try anything. Um, but artificial flavors, really, they're, they're, they've enhanced the way we eat. They're supposed to mimic the real thing by copying the chemical compounds that make up that real thing. Some, like vanilla, do this really well. Odds are you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between imitation vanilla and real vanilla, unless you're really a foodie. <clears throat> now, others like grape or banana, well, they just fail to match up. Regardless, at the end of the day, artificial flavors are just that. They're artificial. And it would be foolish to think that you know what it is to sink your teeth into a fresh Georgia peach because you've had a peach-flavored snow cone. It is a crime to compare Sunny D to real, fresh-squeezed orange juice. And while we might enjoy the experience that comes with eating something that's artificial... When we get a taste for the real thing, really, there is no going back. Well, the people living in the city in Samaria, the city in Samaria that Luke introduced us to last week, have been living for a long time under the impression of power and greatness. But when Philip came and preached the gospel to them, they realized that there was something much better in front of them. It was better because it was real. It was genuine and authentic. The gospel completely changed them. And that's what we're going to be looking at our passage today. This morning we're going to be looking at the true, authentic power of God as King Jesus triumphs over sin and expands his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now as we do, we're also going to be looking at the right way to respond to the gospel. Since this is a passage that not only confronts us with the real power of God and the truth of the gospel, but which also warns us against a sort of artificial faith that has no power to save. So let's begin with reading our text. If you would, please stand with me 
as I read from chapter from Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9 to verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Peter answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you may have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, as we read what Luke has written for us, we see that incredible things were happening in the regions of Judea and Samaria as the gospel spread from its center in Jerusalem out into the regions surrounding it. Last week we looked at the at how at the pressure that had come on the church in the aftermath of Stephen's death and how God used that pressure to actually propel his church into new areas just as he had done here in Samaria. Through the testimony of people like Philip and the works that God did through him, the light of the gospel was shining brightly into the darkness. The rejection of Jesus and the gospel by the Jewish leaders and their allies did not diminish God's plan of salvation. In fact, we have seen that God actually used this in his plan to expand the good news of life to others, even through the scattering of his church. And in so doing, the city of Samaria, where Philip preached, went from being a place that was gripped and controlled by lies to a place of freedom and joy in Christ. The transformation that we see going on here, on a large scale, really is a transformation that comes through the power of the gospel, which is something that every person who is united to Christ by faith gets to experience as the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ 
to us individually. The problem, as we see illustrated in the life of Simon the Magician, or Simon Magus, as he is referred to by some, is that there is a way of responding to the gospel which does not lead to saving faith. As this passage records the great power of God to save his people, it also warns us against an inauthentic faith which has no power to save. So the main idea of our text really is twofold. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings us face to face with God's, with the true, authentic power of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings us face to face with the true, authentic power of God. But to experience that power, to come into contact with it, is not enough. Which is why we have the second part of our main idea, which is this. We must come to this gospel with true faith and authentic hearts. We must come with true faith and authentic hearts. So as we unpack this, this, this passage, I really have three points for you this morning. Three things we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at true power. True power. Second, we're going to be looking at the essential spirit. The essential spirit. And finally, we're going to be thinking about true faith. What is true faith? Well, first of all, Luke brings us face to face with the true power of God in the gospel. As we look at this passage, we see that the gospel was having an enormous impact on cities across Judea and Samaria. But Luke has chosen to focus in particular on this one. And we begin to see why he's so focused on this city, in particular, from what he has told us in this passage, from what he tells us in this passage. In verse 9, Luke actually introduces us to a man who was from this city named Simon. Simon was an influential person. He had gained notoriety and respect for himself through the practice of magic. Luke tells us that prior to Philip's coming, Simon had held the awe of the people. He had amazed them with what he was able to do. Now, Simon was more than an illusionist using sleight of hand and cool gadgets to entertain people. From what Luke indicates about him, Simon was known more or less of what we might call a sorcerer who used his bag of tricks to convince others that he was in some way divine. And as such, Simon had actually managed to gain quite a following for himself. In fact, it appears that Simon must have believed that he was what he had represented himself to others as. Luke tells us that as he amazed the people of Samaria, he was saying that he himself was somebody great, and people were buying it. In verse 10, Luke says that the people paid attention to him, not just your common folk in the city, but all the way up to the greatest people in the city, from the least to the greatest. They were going so far as to say, this man is the power of God that is called great. Catch that, that key word there? Not he has, but he is the power of God. So we're starting to get a better grasp on how lost in darkness the people in this city really were before the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them. Whether Simon was able to keep people's attention through just trickery or through a demonic power or through some combination of both, the reality is that he had represented himself as something that he was not. Simon was really, at the end of the day, a man who was full of pride, who thought very highly of himself. 
He told people that he was somebody, someone great. And because of his magic, they believed him. In fact, the things that Luke tells us the people were saying about Simon were things that really can only be said about God. Simon was a clever man. And he had one goal in life, to exalt himself. And he had some talent or some ability which he used to get that glory from the people of Samaria. He used magic to exalt himself against God and to lead people in the city further and further away from the truth, darkening their understanding and feeding them a steady diet of an artificial kind of power. But all that changed when Philip came along and spoke the good news of Jesus. In verse 12, Luke says, But when they believed Jesus, or sorry, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now it's funny as we read this to notice that Luke doesn't mention the acts of power which accompanied the preaching of the gospel as he did back in verse 7. We might expect that Luke would explain that when the people saw the things that Philip did in the power of God, these casting out demons and healing lame people, that they believed. But that, that's not the case, is it? Luke actually credits the preaching of the good news of the kingdom and the name of Christ with this transformation. While all of those mighty acts must have certainly played an important role in verifying the message that Philip came and preached to the people, Luke is clearly indicating to us that it was God's word applied by the Holy Spirit which actually was at work transforming people's hearts. Now I point this out to you because at the end of the day we need to see the power of God's word as it goes out. According to Luke, it was the preaching of the good news of God's kingdom and the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ which won the day over the darkness. That's not to diminish the, 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 the way that uh, the display of that power through the way that people were being healed and freed from unclean spirits, but it is to remind us, I think, of what Paul later clarifies for us in passages like Romans 10, verse 17, which says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So we see that the Samaritans heard the word of Christ. And as they did, they encountered true power, true greatness, and it made them leave their former ways. Suddenly they were able to see through the artificial greatness of Simon, who had called himself great and held their attention for so long. And the reason they were able to see the difference is because now they had experienced truth. They had realized that while they had once been enamored with a certain kind of power which Simon was using for his own benefit, now they had gotten a taste for true power. Whereas Simon had said that he was someone great, now they had beheld true greatness in the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what did they do? How did they respond? Well, Luke points out three things. First, he says that they believed the gospel that was being preached to them. Second, we see that they broke with their former ways. They repented of it. Look at how Luke has set up this. Luke is, a, Luke is a master writer. Look at how he has set up the way that of, of showing us of the contrast in the way they, what they used to do with what they were doing now. There's a lot of buts in this passage. A lot of contrast here. 
The things that they used to do, they're no longer doing. Now, where they once listened to Simon, now they are listening to the true gospel, and they are worshiping the true Messiah who had been preached to them. Everything that Luke says about the way they used to pay attention to Simon is stated in the past tense, whereas now they are following Christ, which we see displayed in the third thing that they did. The third thing is that they were baptized, both men and women, everyone who heard the gospel and believed it. They broke with the lie that had been sold to them by Simon, and they joined themselves to Christ as his disciples. The gospel prevailed over the lives of Satan. In fact, in verse 13, Luke says that even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Uh, More astonishing, Luke says that Simon continued with Philip, meaning he didn't just make an announcement of faith, get dunked, and then go on his way. He actually stuck around with Philip. He attached himself to him. He listened to him. He watched him. And as he watched the Holy Spirit work in power, performing these many signs and great miracles, Simon was amazed. The power of God was so at work in Samaria through the ministry of Philip as he preached the good news of the gospel that the artificial, inauthentic power that had formerly dominated this city failed and dried up. True power took its place in people's hearts. Whereas in their ignorance they were once held captive to Simon in his lies, now that the true light of Christ has shone into their hearts, they had come to see and know the true Great One. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which you probably know as, as the Great Commission, Jesus commissioned the church, he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all he had commanded them. But if you look at the Great Commission, you'll notice that Jesus begins by saying this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That claim of authority is important because it sets Jesus apart from Simon and every other self-proclaimed great one who has ever lived. Simon was a man who had claimed to be great, to have power and authority for himself. But really, he had as much claim to that as a peasant who makes a claim to the throne. He had no authority to do so. Jesus alone has received authority. He is the word of God through whom the world was made, by whom the world is held together, and for whom the world exists. Jesus alone has received that name that is above every name, that all creation should worship at his throne. Simon's claim to greatness is the difference of a child who builds a castle in the sand and calls himself a king, and the true king who reigns over the country in which the beach is located. There is just no comparison. And as Luke shows, not even Simon himself could deny this authentic power that is exclusively King Jesus's. The gospel brings us face to face with true, authentic power. There are many powers in this world, whether people's nations, even spiritual forces, but they are all subject to the power of the risen king. 
The gospel not only tells us about Jesus' power, but it actually demonstrates that power to us. Since it's through the proclamation of this word that people are set free from the power of the flesh and the powers of the kingdom of darkness that once dominated us. In the prologue of his gospel, John describes the power and the work of Christ like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we look at how the good news of God's kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ overcame the darkness of Samaria, I want you to see the true authentic power that penetrated the darkness of people's hearts. I I want you to see the power of God that is at work as he saves people. People like these Samaritans, but also people like you and me. People like our friends and our families. People like our co-workers and our bosses. Even people who are on the other side of the world. Now this morning we have prayed for our own community. We pray for the people in our lives. We pray for each other. We pray for our missionaries. Why? Because we believe in the power of God and we believe in the power and the authority of his word. This is a power that brings dead hearts to life, which delivers people from the lies of Satan, which transfers us out of his kingdom and into the kingdom of Christ, where we become sons and daughters of the king. This is a power that transforms us, that makes us new, which gives us courage, and which equips us to love. Furthermore, it is a power which propels us out in the world, to bring this good news to others the same way that Philip did when he preached and proclaimed the gospel to the people of this city. Why is it important for you to be convinced and to know this power? Because if the church is going to do its mission, it relies fundamentally on the authority of this word. It also relies on the power of the spirit that is at work within it. That brings us to our second point this morning, the essential spirit. Now Luke has told us a lot about how the people in Samaria experienced a taste of the genuine power of Jesus through the way that they received the gospel. But there was something apparently missing from their lives, something which they had not yet received. And that was the Holy Spirit. In verses 15 and 16, Luke says that the Spirit had not yet fallen on these believers. That is not to say that the Holy Spirit was not at work in Samaria or in the lives of these new believers. True saving faith is a response to the Spirit's work in us. The Spirit is the one who awakens our senses to sin and who makes sin odious to us. The Spirit is the one who convicts us, who shows us that we are in such danger that we deserve God's wrath. And He is also the one who points us to Christ. The Spirit is the one who applies the work of Jesus to us. He is the one who is at work in us to make us into new creatures. We experience the objective work of Christ in our lives the way the Samaritans experienced it because of the subjective work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
when Luke says that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on these Samaritan believers, I take it to mean that they were in a position not unlike what we saw with the disciples and the first believers who had been in prior to the day of Pentecost. Prior to that day, the disciples believed that Jesus was risen. They were trusting in him, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit, who was actually the one who equipped them to proclaim this gospel and to do the works he had called them to do. And I think there are some very good reasons for this delay in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit uh, for these Samaritan believers, which convinces me that this was a very unique experience that had an important purpose in the plan of God, especially at this point in time, to unify the church across ethnic boundaries that normally would have been a huge barrier to the purposes of God for his people. Luke tells us in verse 14, that word actually came back to the apostles. Remember, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Word got back to them about everything that was happening, especially in this city. Specifically, he says, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And when they heard this, Luke tells us that they sent Peter and John to them. And for two very important reasons. As two of the chief apostles, we may understand that Peter and John were expected to go and to confirm that what this report was saying was actually true. That gets back really to the authority of the church which Jesus has given to it. Second, in verse 15, the second reason this is important, is that Luke says that they came down to Samaria and prayed for these new believers in order that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. So two reasons, to confirm that the message is true, that this report is true, and also to take steps to make sure that these Samaritan believers also have the Holy Spirit, that they receive this gift as well. To this point, the believers in Samaria had believed the gospel, but they had not yet, uh, and they had actually been baptized in obedience to Christ, but they had not yet received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit yet. And this is a really interesting detail, since in every other case, besides those pre-Pentecost Christians and the disciples of John, uh, John the Baptist in Ephesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit is something which Scripture uh, seems to attach, especially to the point which says it happens at the point of faith. So there's something unique going on here. There are some who look at this passage and argue that this shows that the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that comes after faith and after baptism. But as John MacArthur has noted, those arguments really ignore the transitional nature of the book of Acts and what this delay in the Spirit's coming on these believers is accomplishing in the life and the unity of the church as a whole. Now, if you remember back to what Jesus had told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, I mentioned it last week, but if you remember that, Jesus had told her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. I think we've seen on an even deeper level than what we do in John, how the Samaritans were worshiping God, but not in a way where they really knew him. The Samaritans in this city had been fooled by Simon and his magic into thinking that somehow Simon was divine. But now their eyes had been opened to the truth. The gospel of Jesus had been preached to them, and they had believed. They'd been baptized, but they hadn't yet been filled with the Spirit. Why? Because while the gospel goes out to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, there is only one Savior who unites us in one body 
through one Spirit. And I believe that the delay that we see here was purposeful to unite the Samaritan and the Jew together in a right way as the church of Christ to the glory of Christ. Now last week I talked just a little bit about the, um, the way that Jews and Samaritans felt about each other. If you missed that, you simply just need to know that they just absolutely hated each other. They despise each other. The gospel changed all of that. It broke those barriers that were previously in place. When the church in Jerusalem heard this report, we might have expected that the apostles would have been rather incredulous that a bunch of Samaritans could have possibly believed the gospel, especially when it had been rejected by the highest religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's not the case at all, is it? Instead, we see that they it's like they leap into action. They send Peter and John, not only to confirm the report, but more importantly, so that these believers would receive the Spirit and the benefit of the way that the Spirit was given to the Samaritans in this way plays out in two ways. First, it meant that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were acknowledging that the gospel was for Samaritans too, not just for them. Jews were about as prone to touch a corpse or a person who had leprosy as they were to touch or have any interaction with a Samaritan. And yet here are Peter and John, two of the foremost apostles, coming, seeing what God was doing, praying for these people, and even laying hands on them, on these new believers, so that they could receive the same gift that was given to them, the Spirit of God. God broke down these cultural barriers for the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls, even of Samaritans. The second way this plays out is that we see for the Samaritan believers, this delay and the way that the Holy Spirit came upon them worked out to remind them of what Jesus said, that salvation truly was of the Jews or from the Jews. They had received this salvation because of Christ and because of his grace. And I think this is meant to be a humbling moment. It meant that the Samaritans had to acknowledge that they had no natural claim on the benefits of the work of Christ. They weren't Jews, but they were saved by a Jewish Savior. They once were bitter transgressors of the law of God, condemned really as heretics, And now they are sharing in the fulfillment of God's covenant promise in his Christ. Grace is shining into a land that has been gripped by darkness and deception. And by receiving the Holy Spirit in this way, these Samaritans who had despised the Jews are now submitting themselves to the apostles and being joined in a new family to them in Christ, bound together in one gospel and one spirit. The effect as a whole is that you don't have the arise and the rising up of two separate churches, each based on cultural rivalries. Instead, you have one universal church under one head, Jesus, equipped by one spirit to live as one people, one nation in the power of God's salvation in the way that God had designed it to be. The interaction between these new believers and Peter and John legitimized what had taken place, but it also sets a certain trajectory for the church, not just for one area of the world, but for the global mission that Jesus has called his church to to do. 
I was reading a post by one of my friends this past week where he's talking about Paul and about what he says concerning the mysteries of God's grace and how the gospel has come even to those outside of ethnic Israel. Uh, Matt made a point that from where we stand in history, the mystery of how the blessings of salvation have expanded in Christ to include the nations doesn't always seem that mysterious to us because it's all we've ever known. In fact, we're tempted, I think, to take them as a given. But Paul calls this act of God's mercy a mystery. That's why we read from Romans 11 earlier. And he reminds us, just as he did the church in Ephesus, at one time, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the gospel exposes us to the power of God, a power which is able to override these natural barriers, these boundaries, and to expand the blessings of salvation to the world. And we're not at the point in the book of Acts where we're going to see how the gospel was expanded by God to include the Gentiles too, but I think that this is an important first stepping stone. God conquered this barrier. The Spirit came to these Samaritans, and it came in such a way that it forged unity between these two different peoples in a way that only Christ can do. The simple application of this for our own lives is that if we are in Christ, we must never take the grace which has been given to us for granted. It's so easy to... How often do we sing amazing grace without really reveling in awe at how amazing God's grace is. Every conceivable barrier that had been placed in the way by Satan to your salvation, Christ has triumphed over it. He has triumphed because he has true, genuine power and authority. The only response that we can rightfully have as believers is to humble ourselves and worship at the throne of Christ and to sing to his glory, though I do not know why you chose to save me. Thank you. That's the right response to the grace of God. Now, we've looked at the power of God. We've seen the essential presence of the Spirit and how God gave it in a way that magnified what he had done in Christ. We also need to look at true faith and what that is though if Simon was amazed at the message and the signs that Philip did he was overwhelmed by Peter and John in verse 18 we actually see him returning to old ways Luke says now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money saying give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit now, it was common for magicians in Simon's day to sell secrets and tricks to each other. 
So in offering money to Peter and John in exchange for being able to do what they're doing, uh, Simon may have felt like that was only natural. But the fact that he does this shows us that while Simon had professed faith, while he had received the mark of baptism, while he had even been in awe of the amazing things that were being done and continuing to be done with Philip as he ministered, we see that his heart was not right. It's hard to say what Simon's motives were when he first professed faith and was baptized. It's possible for us to think, oh, well, Simon saw opportunity. He realized that if he didn't get along with this, he was going to lose any credibility. But it's also possible that Simon got caught up in the moment and hadn't really dealt with his heart. In this action, though, we see that Simon's pride is still very much got a hold of his heart. It's possible that when he saw the true power of the gospel, he had decided he was going to associate himself with this, try to learn something, try to gain power, influence, continuing to do that for himself. Uh, but we don't really know what that is. We can just see how he's reacting to this. So when Peter and John arrive and Simon sees the Holy Spirit coming on these new believers, especially as it's being given, he saw an opportunity to make himself greater, to make more of himself. And he just couldn't help himself anymore. He had to have this power for himself. After all, Simon had been telling people that he was someone who was great. Maybe this is his chance to elevate his game a bit. Well, we see that it didn't work out. Simon offered Peter and John money, which shows he really didn't understand the significance of what was going on here. The Holy Spirit is not a force to be controlled. He is the third person of the Trinity. God is not for sale. He is not controlled by the whims or the will of man. He is not transferred because of some swap that happens in an alley. The foolishness of this action just tells us that Simon may have thought that he was the power of God that is called great, but really he had no idea who God is. Simon was treating God like one might treat Poseidon or Zeus. He's acting like a pagan towards the one true living God, thinking that if he just has this ability, he can make God answer to him, as long as he has the right words to say. This, this action takes Simon's arrogance to a whole new level, which is why Peter curses Simon in verse 20. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is an accurate translation. But the ESV has kind of softened the blow of what Peter is actually saying here. You, you need to understand, Peter, this is a, the fisherman is coming out of Peter right here. This is a strong curse. Something more like, to hell with you and your money. Because you thought God was for sale. All right, that's, that's the level of this statement here. And I imagine Simon, who was used to purchasing tricks, was shocked by this. I suppose anyone who had heard Peter, the apostle, have an outburst like this must have been. But Peter isn't done with Simon. You have neither part nor lot in this matter or this ministry, for your heart is not right before God. So the issue of the matter then, as we look at this, is not just that Simon asked to be able to give the Spirit. The real issue is Simon's heart. He's not seeking God or the Holy Spirit. He's seeking the power of God for his own. He wants to be God. 
clearly even here the prosperity gospel that is so popular today has taken hold of Simon's heart. He wanted the power, the influence, the wealth, and the respectability that he saw here. He'd do what he had to do to get it, even if that meant spending his silver. He thought he could buy God. He thought he could buy his position in the kingdom of God, but no. In fact, he showed that at this point in time, he had neither part nor reason to cl- claim to have any of this. He has, no, he has no part either in this ministry nor in this inheritance because he wasn't serving Christ. He was serving himself. Simon was great. He was great in his own eyes. And so he treated religion, he treated God as a way to get greatness for himself. Peter's response might feel a little dramatic to us, but really it's not. Peter spoke this way to him to rip the mask of godliness that Simon had put on to reveal the true state of Simon's soul that lay underneath. Luke says that Simon believed the gospel. And as I've been studying this passage, I've been wrestling, what do you mean, Luke? I mean, Luke says that he was baptized, that, that he was spending time with Philip. But the true state of Simon's soul is that he was still lost in his sin and he was still a servant to the old passions of his flesh. Listen to the rest of what Peter says to him. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. These are not things that can be said of a person who has truly been saved, nor of someone who has the Holy Spirit in them. Peter doesn't talk to Simon here as a believer. He addresses him as someone who is on the path to hell, warning him strongly, exposing his sin, and calling him to repent. Notice Peter doesn't slam the door on Simon's uh, on grace for Simon. He, he calls him, repent, seek God. I think that we're meant to understand that when Luke says Simon believed, that he believed in the same way that those crowds who followed Jesus believed, but who abandoned him as his time to go to the cross drew near. They saw, but they did not follow. There are many who, like Simon, love what God can give them, but they do not love God himself. And God is no fool. He's not interested in outward shows of religion, but demands the whole heart, the whole of who we are. He will not allow himself to be used as a means to serve the idols that our hearts so desire. And yet there are many who treat God like a totem or like a a lucky rabbit's foot. People make the sign of the cross as they step up to go to bat. They make vows to God. If you'll just give me this or you'll just give me that, I'll live for you, but nothing really changes. They give to this ministry or to that ministry being told that if they just have enough faith, God will bless them and highly favor them when God wants none of those things. Not if they're not accompanied with a right heart. In Isaiah 1 verse 12, God says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. What does the Lord require of us? Well, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Simon may have believed that the gospel was true, the evidence standing right before him, but he wasn't actually interested in submitting himself to Jesus as his Lord and King. Simon's faith is terrifying. Because while it, is, while it is, as Luke says, that he believed, he did not have saving faith. In time, he showed that the true master of his heart was himself, not Christ. And like Paul describes to Timothy of Demas, he was in love with the current world, but not with the Lord. One of the most terrifying passages in the Bible has got to be Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's, that's a frightening passage. It's a passage that is meant to shake us awake, to keep us from putting our faith, our trust in anything or anyone besides Christ. Just as Peter's words to Simon were designed to shake him awake, to let him know, all is not right with you. You are still bound in your sin. You must repent while the door of God's mercy is still open. Simon had an outward showing of faith. He was baptized, but there really wasn't any integrity to what he professed. Listen to his response to Peter. And Peter answered him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Wait, what, Simon? Didn't you hear what Peter said? Peter's warned you, but you're not listening to what he told you to do. He told you to repent. He told you to seek mercy. He told you to be to go to the only one who can make atonement for your sin. And not only that, who intercedes for his people as a high priest who is able to sympathize with his people in their weakness. That's what Peter told you to do. Not to ask him to go pray for you that you might be spared of these consequences. When Simon asked Peter to pray, it, honestly, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to pray for each other. In fact, we're actually commanded to do that, to pray for one another, to restore one another in James 5. But when Simon makes this request, you've you got to sense this hollowness that is there, a hollowness which tells me he's not truly repentant. If he had, he would have gone to Christ. He merely asks Peter to remove the curse from him. Please pray for me that this won't happen, Peter. That's it. Peter's eyes, Simon's eyes, as far as I can tell, are still blind. His heart is still hard. He doesn't want the consequences, but neither is he willing really to submit to Jesus. Like a, like a dog coming back to its own vomit, or a pig, after it, which after being washed returns to the mud. Simon, after seeing the power of the gospel and the greatness of Christ, has returned to worshiping his own greatness. According to his church fathers, Simon the magician, or Simon Magus, as he is also called, never did repent. In fact, he ended up being a huge issue for the church, especially in Samaria, becoming a leading teacher of Gnosticism, which was really the first heresy that the early church had to deal with. He continued to make much of himself, 
As the early church father, Justin Martyr, who was also a Samaritan, describes that almost all of his countrymen regarded Simon as the highest god. Simon never repented. He had a sort of faith, a belief, but it wasn't saving. So the point is this. There is a kind of belief in Jesus that does not save. While it may affirm truths, while it may seek the benefits that God gives, it does not actually submit to Christ. This is the kind of belief that we see in Simon's life. And it's the same sort of faith that James speaks of pertaining to demons. It's been said the devil is a better theologian than us all and yet remains a devil still. There is no question in Satan's mind as to the reality of God, the existence of God, the excellence of God, or the power of God, yet he still hates God. Why? Because he loves himself. So I want you to be warned, brothers and sisters. The gospel exposes us to the true, authentic power of God, the power which is able to take sinners and to turn them into sons and daughters of God. But we must come to this gospel rightly, bearing the fruit in keeping with true repentance and true faith. Let our one and only plea before the judgment seat of God be this, that though I am a great sinner, Christ is a greater Savior, and he died and rose for me, that I might have eternal life with him. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we've, we've wrestled over Simon, a man who professed faith and yet in the end loved himself. Father, keep us from such an artificial faith. Let your spirit convict us of the roots of our heart that are crawling towards idols. Cut those roots off and direct them to Jesus that we might grow and thrive in him. In him is the life and the light. In him is the promise of eternal life. And we trust what you say in your word when you say that all who trust in Jesus will be saved. We pray, Father, that we would not just merely believe truths but that we would be made new by the power of your Spirit, who is the gift to all who believe. Father, I pray even as we go out on our ways into the world, that we would preach the gospel, and that through our testimony, the power of God would be known in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. And we thank you that you will bring your purposes to pass. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.